Welcome to the OSMA Talks podcast series, hosted by Oklahoma State Medical Association President, Dr. Larry Bookman, MD. Interim Commissioner for the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse, uh, Carrie Slatton Hodges. Thank you for being here. I know it's been a whirlwind week for you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how this all came about. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rickman, for having me here today. And indeed, it has been a busy week, uh, full of announcements. Um, yes, so I um, have been with the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services as part of our leadership team for the last 12 years. Um, I've served as the Deputy Commissioner during that time. Um, and then this, uh, this past Tuesday, we had an announcement that Commissioner White was I'm going to be uh, stepping down as commissioner and that I would be moving into the interim commissioner role. So um, it's been a, a quick process and, and I'm still adjusting. Have you had a chance to even review all that's going on? Because I know there's a lot on your plate right now. Well, what I would say is that um, having served in the role that I've been in the last 12 years, I'm, I'm up to date on many, many things. But in terms of actually processing this change, I have not really had a moment to stop and think about it. How'd you get into the field of mental health? Is your background? So um, I started out, I got a bachelor's degree in human resources management from Southern Nazarene University. Um, I had been a city girl and I was transplanted out to Western Oklahoma and when I was in Western Oklahoma, there is a wonderful university there, Southwestern Oklahoma State University in Weatherford, Oklahoma. I wanted to continue on with graduate studies. I went to visit there. Um, there was a wonderful gentleman, Dr. Rodney Scott. He was a psychologist and head um, of, of their um, Masters of Applied Psychology program. Um, we, uh, I had a great liking to him and I continued to study there for the next several years. Uh, doing a little over 60 graduate hours in psychology and graduated with my master's degree and became a licensed professional counselor and started my career out in a rural environment. I uh, spent about 10 years out in a rural environment in all aspects of mental health and addiction treatment and um, it was a tremendous pleasure. Well, from a state's perspective, where do we stand on mental health and on substance abuse? Well, I think we have come a long way um, in terms of uh, developing evidence-based practices around our state, getting more treatment availability around our state, but I would say we still have a really long way to go. We have a long way to go in, um, number one, I think reducing the stigma, in particular for persons who have symptoms and, and having them feel comfortable to go somewhere, to speak to their physician, to speak to a person about, this is what I'm experiencing, what do I need to do, or how can you help me um, become optimally healthy? And so I think that is one of um, our greatest challenges in Oklahoma, is really just to kind of pull the curtains back and, and talk about these issues openly and frankly, and that, um, this is not something that is unique or just a rare percentage of persons have symptoms. This is something that is quite widespread around our state and I feel like that's an area we have a long way to go. One of the problems that 
I see uh, from a health professional standpoint. Uh, if you look at the last uh, rankings, we were sixth in the number of health care, mental health care workers, yet we were 48th in mental health outcomes. So there's a big discrepancy um, on what our outcomes, at least being reported, versus the number of people. Is access to mental health an issue and can we overcome it? Well, we have hovered around 48th in the nation per capita for funding for mental health and addiction issues. And so I think that is, is one of the issues that causes the great disparity between the number of persons that we have experiencing symptoms and the number of persons who are actually on the road to recovery. Um, we also have always had one of the highest percentages of persons who suffer from mental illness in our state compared to other states. We're always in the top five. And so when you couple having very high percentages of mental illness and low per capita funding, um, although we have made strides, and I, and I would love to point those out, the strides that we have made, but that leads to having a lot of persons with untreated mental health and addiction issues that we truly need to address as a state. We see those in many other ways that end up being more costly in our state as opposed to treating and getting people into the right care um, from the beginning. And funding is true across all health care. We're all experiencing that and obviously uh, uh, in the news now with the governor coming out with a new plan, uh, the legislature hopefully will have an answer uh, and the state can move forward so that we all get better funding in the future. I know that is important. Um, I've written about the fact that we can't move forward in our health outcomes without better funding. So, uh, and federal funds are going to be important to all of us. Absolutely. Part of the treatment program throughout the country has been with what's called MAT, yes. medically assisted treatment, uh, using Suboxone, etc. Um, where does Oklahoma stand on that? How well do we do? And what do you see as the future in that? Well, I think that's a really exciting um, aspect of Oklahoma in that uh, it took us a little bit of time as it did the rest of the country to realize that we have an opiate problem here. We have a lot of prescribing, we have a lot of diversion, we have a lot of persons who uh, sometimes due to their own actions and sometimes simply taking as recommended have become opiate addicted persons. Early on when we started to realize this was happening we made a concerted effort to ensure that we um, made availability to medication-assisted treatment as wide as possible. So in doing so, we took all of our community mental health centers, which those cover regions all around the state, and we coupled that with our Comprehensive Community Addiction Recovery Centers, or CCARCs, and we worked with them so that each of those locations could step up and have medication-assisted treatment available. We strongly preach that what we want persons to do is have a trained physician who meets with the person individually and they, between the two of them, decide what is the right course of treatment for them. That may include various forms of MAT or it may not include MAT, depending upon that individual, their level of addiction, what their lifestyle is like, etc. So we've done a very good job of getting medication-assisted treatment out across the state. Um, and the good news is, um, 
as a state, we're really starting to see some progress. We are starting to see the numbers of overdose deaths from opiates go down. We're one of the few states that have seen that. We're starting to see the number of opiate prescriptions go down dramatically. Um, and we're seeing the number of persons who are getting in and receiving treatment for opiate addiction go up. So we're really excited mm -hmm. about having turned that corner. We still have a lot of work to do. One of the things that we have to do is continue to maintain the system that we have out there. We um, were fortunate enough to have some large federal grants come into our state to support the treatment and prevention of opiates in our state. That's what we've been utilizing to, re to get medication-assisted treatment out. If the federal government were ever to decide that um, they are going another direction and start to pull those dollars back, then we'll need to step up, evaluate what, what treatment needs still remain, and ensure that we cover those. Okay, very good. Um, certainly, we've seen a 28% reduction in opioid prescriptions. Uh, many of the doctors throughout the state had uh, a lot of concern with some of the uh, laws that have been passed up to now, especially uh, with 840, Senate Bill 848 that was passed last year. Um, but I think we're all getting a little more comfortable. Change is always hard. It's very, um, very difficult. Yeah, and physicians especially have a difficult time. But uh, I think we are seeing effects, and I agree with you. Uh, the number of prescriptions certainly has gone down. With the uh, medically assisted or uh, medicinally assisted uh, treatment, you said that they see a doctor. Mm -hmm. Do we use mid-levels, nurse practitioners at all in those programs, or do they always see a physician? Um, it can be an APRN. Um, an APRN can become waiver trained, just okay. like a physician can, and so sometimes that is the case. For the most part across our field today, they are waiver trained physicians, um, but we do have our APRNs in certain areas that have stepped up. One of the things that has also helped us um, around MAT, but also with other um, uh, treatment issues, and, and I'll go into more in depth on this in a little bit when we talk about innovation, is also having the ability to utilize telemedicine in ways too, so that even the most remote places where a physician may not frequent, um, someone can get started, but can continue their medication-assisted treatment with a physician through a telemedicine program. And, and that's real important. Um, one of the problems that the, the state's going to have to deal with is that our broadband width for the rural parts of the state are non-existent. Uh, the money to develop those is going to be high, and does the state have the money and the capability to do that? Because telemedicine is something that's very important for the rural parts of our state. Um, I served on the governor's transition team and that was one of the recommendations we made was the use of telemedicine, but we've got to have the infrastructure to get that really uh, where it needs to be That's to make an effect. Point. That's a very so. good point, especially when you're talking about electronic health records and those types of things. For people to have access to that, for it to work seamlessly and smoothly, you need good, good access and good broadband coverage. Do we have the ability to use MAT in our incarcerated patients? So, uh, personally, in terms of what is happening inside the Department of Corrections, I, I can't address that. What I can tell you is we did receive some dollars from the legislature last year that we're putting into um, practice right now 
that have been for pilot programs for medication-assisted treatment inside jails. And so we have partnered first with Tulsa County Jail, <laughs> where now every person that comes into Tulsa County Jail um, is assessed for opiate dependence and use. They meet with a waiver-trained physician to discuss whether MAT would be appropriate and what type of MAT, and then they are started on that while they are in the jail. Um, then there is a discharge planner that works with them to ensure that there's a smooth transition out into the community when they leave to continue their MAT. Very excited about this program. I do think we have the ability to capture persons at a very vulnerable point to help assist them in getting into recovery. I'm very, very excited about that. I just met with um, Sheriff Gibson down in Cleveland County um, earlier this week. Um, he was very excited about moving forward with this in the Cleveland County Jail as well. And so um, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Uh, Tulsa County was what I was uh, alluding to because it's a pilot program. Uh, it's been going on for more than a year now. Um, do we have any results, preliminary results, to show what we've uh, accomplished? Well, what I would say is when Tulsa County started out, they were not starting out in a model where you're assessed and provided MAT okay. that might be whatever level is appropriate. When they first started out, they went with a Vivitrol program only. Um, and there are persons that respond beautifully to Vivitrol, and there are persons that that is not the best course of, of treatment for them. So we really just started in November having access to whatever medication-assisted treatment would be best for you in the um, Tulsa County Jail. We are collecting data around that, and we, um, you know, we'll need a little but we will be tracking that diligently to see who has gone back to work, perhaps um, if there were uh, issues with maintaining their children, how that's been affected, um, but I am excited. So far, anecdotally, we're seeing very good results, and so I look forward to being able to share that data in the future. That's going to be very important uh, for everyone in the state. Metrics, if we don't measure the outcomes uh, and know that we're accomplishing, just running a program, I metrics agree. are important. I agree. What do you see as some of the innovative uh, features coming forward? One of the things that, um, that is going on in our state that I find um, very innovative and I have seen situations where it has worked beautifully and that is that we have a region in our state that has, it, it first, well, there's, it's twofold. One is um, they first um, opened what they call intensive outpatient locations, so 24-7 Anybody can come in anytime. If you're experiencing symptoms, if you uh, feel like you're in a crisis, if your family and friends are worried about you, open 24-7, come on in, we'll assess, we'll treat, treatment on demand for whatever you need. So they first started doing this and what they found was the number of persons from that region that needed to go on to um, hospitalized care started to go down. They were excited about that. They also started to see people come earlier with symptomology rather than later when they are in a crisis and law enforcement is intervening. So that's been exciting. So what they layered into that innovative approach was to say, you know, when we see people 
multiple times come in on a 24-7 uh, location, we're going to start sending them home with an iPad. And that iPad is going to be cleared of anything with the exception of a button that they can push for emergency. And it's going to have a couple of buttons over to the side. One that is their clinician, another that's their case manager, and one that's their physician. And we're going to send this home with them and we're going to say, look, anytime, anytime you're starting to experience symptoms, you're having problems, you just push this button. In addition to that, we're going to send you appointment reminders. We're going to send you a calendar to prompt you uh, on medication taking, on when your next interaction with your therapist is, and we're going to start to communicate with you that way. And what they found over time in doing that is then that re reduced those persons' need and utilization of coming to a 24-7 system. So they were intervening before the crisis by having that availability um, with them all the time. So they branched out from that and said, you know, we're going to go to a model where everybody that we treat for services, anyone, even if they're not regularly in crisis, we're going to give them an iPad and we're going to have those same things programmed on there. Because one of the things that has always been a barrier in our rural counties is transportation. You may have a, a, a provider in your region, but they may be 20 miles away. And if you have difficulty having a reliable vehicle or money for gas, any of those types of things, you may not get treatment and your mental health may suffer. So by sending everybody that they treat home with an iPad, they can come in sometimes or they can receive the majority of their care via that iPad. And then they also have the buttons for emergent care anytime. And that has just really, when you look at the statistics around that, it has driven the rate of crises and the rate of hospitalizations down tremendously. It's also increased their, um, the persons in their area that they are treating who need medication. It has increased their medication compliance as well, which again helps to ward off symptoms. So I feel like this is a very exciting innovation that has come, especially as we are a rural state, that I hope um, in the next few years we'll see statewide. I think it can really help a lot of people. How long has that program been in existence? Well, when they started out rather small, with mostly with persons in crisis, has been about two years ago. This last year has when they've switched to the model of everyone that they treat receives an iPad. And when you were talking about broadband, the way they do these is they load them already when they send them to the person with the, um, the, the phone provider in their area's data plan and that's the way that they're keeping the connectability. Have other states had this program or did we initiate the first one? I have never seen it anywhere but Oklahoma. I believe we are the first state in the nation to do this. That's certainly something we need to be proud of and Absolutely. again with metrics ought to be something that we publish and promote because that's an outstanding program. I agree. Um, and, and one other thing about that innovative program that they expanded to is that every law enforcement person in that region also has an iPad in their vehicle so that if they come across someone that is experiencing symptoms, the law enforcement has their own kind of app, if you will, built into theirs. They immediately um, are in contact with a mental health professional they can then hand that iPad to the person in crisis and have a complete connectivity right there. 
So does this extend to the families and the children as well? It does. Um, and there's, um, again, anecdotally, there's some wonderful stories. I, um, I can remember a story from a woman that told me that um, she and her daughter uh, just could not maintain in the home together. The daughter had emotional outbursts. She would lock herself in the room. Um, she was being repeatedly hospitalized for those types of behaviors. And she said, we haven't had that problem anymore. Sure, we have outbursts from time to time, but in terms of hospitalization, it hasn't been required. If we get to a point where we can't communicate, I literally slide the iPad under the door and, and she starts communicating with her counselor um, at some point they say, she opens the door and says, you know, mom, he wants us to all sit down and visit and we'll all sit down and visit and are able to move forward after that. So you're, it has the ability to help in many, many cases. Well, that's excellent. Do you feel at this point that we're on the right track as a state? I do. I do. I feel like we've had some really exciting things happening. I'll give you another example of something that I'm so excited about and very proud about, and that is that in our state, one of our biggest gaps in treatment was when a person is assessed and based upon ASAM criteria, they need residential substance abuse treatment. Well, last May, if you are a male and you're assessed and you need residential substance abuse treatment, you're going on a wait list and your average wait time is 203 days until a bed is available for you. Well, you can imagine what's going to happen during that 203 days when you are already at a level that is recommending residential treatment for you. You're liable to be arrested, jailed, or die from an overdose or have some, some bad outcome. Last year, our legislature invested $10 million into residential substance abuse treatment. This year we've been able to get up and running 186 new beds in our state, which is fantastic. In March, we will be moving from a wait list to a bed availability app, so that when someone comes in and is assessed and is needing that level of care, the person they're interacting with can go to that program, see where the bed is available, look at the program to ensure it's the best match for that person, make a phone call and place the person right into that bed. So that is a huge stride for Oklahoma and I think it's going to make a world of difference in the long run in terms of getting people into recovery. Yeah, availability and access are the keys. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that uh, we hear both on the federal level as well as the state level is about uh, mental health parity. Yes. Uh, a term meaning basically that mental health is treated equal to physical health by the insurance companies. Um, how do you feel about that and are we making strides, positive strides? Well of course how I feel about it is that mental health and, and mental disorders are diseases just like any other disease. They happen to be diseases that um, start in the brain and are housed in the brain just like diabetes is a disease of the pancreas, heart disease. So they should all be treated exactly the same, as well as addiction. And so it is very frustrating when you see people who have barriers to care because of insurance coverage around these disorders. Some things that come to mind um, that I have seen or that I get calls about are um, uh, too tight of limits on the amount of care that someone can receive. 
Um, I see people who are um, leaving inpatient units, leaving addiction treatment much earlier than their actual diagnosis and assessment and illness would stay they, that they need to stay because of the insurance coverage not going longer. Um, I also see where the deductible that a person has when they go to see someone for mental health care is higher because it'll be considered specialty care, so they fall under a specialty care deductible as opposed to a regular deductible. All of those things are barriers to care. If you think about the average person in Oklahoma, they actually think long and hard before they go to the physician. And the reason they do is because that's something they have to budget for. They have to budget what their co-pay is going to be like. They're going to have to budget whether they've met their deductible. And so when you put any additional barriers of cost or limits to persons for mental illness and addiction issues, you're going to drive down the number of persons who go and seek care first off and that can get the care that they need. So I look forward to continued work on this issue, both on the federal level, on the state level, to ensure that parity exists 100% across the board. I agree. I think that's very important, uh, certainly on both levels. Uh, we're most concerned with our state, and we need our insurance carriers to understand that mental health parity is important. Absolutely. Uh, we absolutely need that. In the recent years, we've seen both an op opioid uh, issue. Um, we've talked about that. We've passed, quote, medical marijuana. Uh, which we have uh, more than 200,000 people now with uh, marijuana cards. Um, have we seen an effect on mental health issues both in our adolescents as well as our adults since those issues have come about? Well, I don't think we can show data-wise yet. It's a little too soon. But what we can look at is data that exists and studies that exist from um, other states and or from around marijuana in general. And one of the areas that is the greatest concern is the effect on the developing brain uh, by the use of marijuana. And that is a great concern. There are studies that show that that is long lasting, in fact permanent uh, changes in the brain based upon marijuana use by adolescents. The other thing that is very concerning is that um, there have been studies that confirm that adolescents who perhaps have a predisposition towards a psychotic disorder will develop that psychotic disorder at an earlier age um, and perhaps that wouldn't have developed it at all um, had they not had marijuana use during that age during their developing brain. So those things are very scary as we look towards um, more accessibility to that substance. The other thing that um, that I will point out that is very concerning is that there's a lot of research that shows that when, when youth in particular have a perceived thought of risk, so if your thought about marijuana is that everybody does it, it's not harmful, it's prescribed all the time, it's commonplace, then your likelihood of using goes way up. And so I think it's very important to realize when we have a culture, if you will, of our state that views that you are likely to see an increase in youth usage and then the poor outcomes that we talked about around that. So one of the things that's incredibly important as we continue forward along these paths is to make sure that we have prevention efforts in place 
that we make sure that we educate people to have these conversations with youth about not using, their brain is developing, it can cause long-term damage, even psychosis, and, um, and to make sure that we're making that knowledge widely available. I agree, education in all aspects of healthcare, and especially mental health, is very important. Uh, I know studies have shown that uh, adolescents under the age of about 25 still have developing brains and, and we certainly need to try to limit uh, to 21 yes. um, and we also need people to understand that the marijuana of 2020 is not the marijuana of the 1960s. Right. Uh, many adults say, oh, you know, I tried, I used, it didn't cause me any problems what we deal with today is not the same it just has the same name and that's important information that needs to be gotten out to people i agree and I, and i'm amazed at the number of persons who have not received that education and knowledge and have very very clear misunderstandings around um, what we're talking about when we say marijuana today well, I appreciate you being here. It's been very informative. I hope all of our viewers have uh, learned a lot about mental health in Oklahoma and the strides we're making, very positive strides. Uh, we will continue to work with our mental health professionals to try to improve mental health and health care outcomes in Oklahoma. I thank you all for being with us this week, and I look forward to the next visit of OSMA Talk. Learn more at okmed.org and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Have a question for Dr. Bookman? Email him at osmatalks at okmed.org.